Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you're well. Anybody tired this morning from staying up watching football last night? That was pretty cool, wasn't it? To see, that was a great win for Georgia Southern. Glad to see that happen. Um, and look forward to seeing the season that uh, they have. Uh, it was super exciting. Now, I didn't see it. I was asleep. I got a text. I read it this morning. It came through at like 11.03. It said, Hell Southern. So I'm like, well, hey, they won. But I was asleep well before that. So, um, but I am glad they pulled that out. It was a great game, the part that I did watch. So really cool. Um, today, I'm also excited about this new series. As John said, this is something we've been talking about, praying through for quite a while. Um, and as you can tell, the name of it is Cultural Captivity. The tagline to this is Breaking Free from the Cultural Narrative. How do we break free from the cultural narrative, what we're being told in our lives today um, through culture around us? And so we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks. Today, we're going to begin um, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're also going to read in just a moment out of John chapter 7, verses 53, and go into chapter 8 through the first 11, 12 verses right there. Um, the reason I say that is because I want to talk about those verses just a minute. Um, John 7, 53 through uh, John 8, 11. I want you to understand this. This can sound kind of nerdy, but for me, it's more about me making sure that I present God's word accurately than it is uh, anything else. And so when you look at those passages of scripture, that passage, as you're gonna see in a minute, is the passage where the woman caught in adultery is brought to Jesus. Uh, many of us, probably most of us who've been in church have heard that, that account. We've heard about it um, uh, probably multiple times. It's one of the most known and most loved uh, passages that we have. The thing about it is that that passage of scripture, 53 on into eight through verse 11, we're not in, and you'll see this in some of your Bibles, it'll be noted. Um, those were not in what we, we call the earliest manuscripts. So when the Gospel of John was first written and, and people began to discover these manuscripts, those, that story was not in there. And so the point of it is, many people believe that it was not part of the original document that John wrote. Now, one of the things this does is it shows us how... Um, intentional the people were to preserve what we now know as the scripture. But when we look at this, I want you to know it was not in that original document most likely. However, every scholar, every person that I've studied from that's way smarter than me has said that this story is, is one that happened. It's legitimate. It's an account that really did take place. It doesn't contradict anything that as Christians we believe um, but the thing is, I want you to know that. I want to be upfront with that. We can still learn from it. We can still glean from it. We can still see um, a lot of Jesus's heart in it. But I just want you to know that it was not part of that. We don't want to draw any kind of doctrine from it. But what we can do is see and learn from Christ through how he handled this situation. And so that's a little disclaimer on that. But today I want us to jump into chapter one first. We're going to read the first 13 verses um, then we'll read out of John 7 and 8, and we're going to pray. We're going to jump into this message um, and see what the Lord has to say to us today. And so in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, if you take John chapter 1 and you go lay it on top of Genesis chapter 1, you'll see the similarities. John has in mind Genesis 1 and the creation story as he's writing this. And so it's pretty cool that John does that as Jesus comes into the world to recreate and bring order out of chaos. 
But he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from John whose name was, or a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So all things were made through Christ, all things were put together through Jesus, for Jesus, but it's saying that the world didn't recognize him when he came into the world. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now let's flip over a few chapters, John chapter 8. The very last verse of 7, actually. Verse 53 in chapter 7 says this, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word and the truth that is in it. I pray, Lord, today that our hearts would be set on fire through the word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you, God, that you sent Jesus into the darkness, into a dark, spiritually dead world, so that you could bring us to life, that this wasn't something that was even our decision, but it was your decision to send him to allow us to be born, to, to be born again as your children. Thank you for giving us that, Lord. Thank you that for those who are in Christ, we have become a new creation. Thank you, God, that the gospel is still powerful, that, God, you still use it to bring people to life. Thank you for the price that was paid for our sin on the cross, and thank you for the hope we have in the resurrection, that because the grave is empty, Lord, we have hope. Because the grave is empty, God, we know that the power of the resurrection of Jesus lives in us. The same power that raised him from the dead is in us, God. And I thank you because of that, that the world has been overcome, that we have overcome the world by faith in him, that the battle has been won. Lord, I pray right now you speak to us through your word. God, that it wouldn't be something that's man-made, 
from me, Lord, but that, God, it would be something that is powerful because it's God-breathed. Lord, we thank you for all you do and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when I was about 20, 19, 20 years old, um, I was framing that summer. I was working for a framing company, and we were framing houses. We were actually at this point framing a doctor's office here in town. And so it was hot. It was middle of the summer. It's about 100 degrees. So every day at lunch, I would run home, and I would lay on the couch as long as I could and just try to cool off. Might eat a little bit of lunch, but try to catch a quick nap, and then I'd go back to, to work um, back in the heat. And so I'm laying there on the couch one day, and all of a sudden, there's somebody just beating frantically on my door. And, and they're hollering, they're screaming, they're beating on the door. I open it, it's this lady. She says, my house is on fire. And she lived right next door to us. And, and so I go running out of the house. I, I didn't have a shirt on. I had tennis shoes on. I had on shorts. I think they were actually cut off jean shorts back then. So that was cute. And then I'm running over to her house and she's like, my house is on fire. My house is on fire. And I'm looking around and I don't see any smoke. I don't see anything coming out of the house, but I grabbed a hose pipe. I turned it on and I kinked the hose. I started walking in the house. I walk in the front door. There's no smoke. I'm looking down the hall. There's no smoke. There's nothing to indicate the house is on fire. And so I go and I finally step into the kitchen and I look and there are flames going up the walls. There's, the cabinets are on fire. The wall's on fire. Everything's burning in the kitchen. And so I took the hose. I unkinked it. I, I sprayed the walls. I sprayed it. I put it out. I kinked it back up. I walk outside. The fire department's pulling up. I dropped the hose. I said, I think I got it. And I went on back and lay back on the couch. I just thought that was a baller move, right? I thought that was pretty awesome, right? It's a stud move. And, and so um, I say that, though, to say this. One is this, that... When Jesus came into the world, he stepped into our mess. He stepped into a life that was headed for destruction. He stepped into a world that had been marred and destroyed. Just as this house is on fire and, and things are being destroyed and, and, and it's, it's coming to a bad end, Jesus stepped into that. And he, he, he did the unthinkable. Rather than condemning he saved. And he stepped into our darkness and he stepped into our mess and he stepped into all of this stuff so that he could pull us out of it. He stepped into darkness not to conform to it, but to call us out. It says that he was the light of the world. He is the light of the world. It says that he came into the world as that light, and that light was the life of man. And even though he was not recognized by his own creation, he still did what he had to do so that through him, creation could be saved. And that includes you and I. And he steps in and he comes to deliver. And as we look at culture around us today, there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of things that I look at every day and I go, this absolutely makes no sense. And it's changing faster and faster and faster. And we're bombarded with it more and more and more and more today. And, and we need as Christians to know how do we, one, stand in this culture? How do we stand in the world we live in and stay in truth? But then also, how do we step into the darkness to pull other people into the light? How do we not 
give in to it, conform to it? How do we step in so that other people can come to life? If we're going to do this, I want to ask you some questions today because I think if we can answer these questions, we can see the answers, then we can step into the darkness and we can call people into light. I think some of you are going to like the first half of the message and maybe not the last half so much. Others of you probably aren't going to like the first half of the message so much and you'll probably like the last half. But that's probably a good thing. And I want you to listen to the whole message. I don't want you to just take part of it and run with it. The first question I would ask you, if we're going to live in this culture, if we're going to step into the darkness as Jesus did and call people to light, if we're not going to be held captive by culture, if we're going to break free from the cultural narrative around us, then the first thing we have to decide is this, is God's word the truth? Is God's word the truth? We have to decide, is this book, is the Bible true or is it not? Is it true or is it not? Is it just for me that some parts are true? If so, what parts? Is some of it God-breathed? Is some of it alive and living and powerful and active? If it's just some parts, then which parts? Is it the parts that I like? Is it the parts that don't infringe on my desires? Which parts are true and which parts aren't? What's the standard for what is and what isn't? Is it my own opinion? Then if that's the case, you're putting your opinion on par with God's authority. And that's not the case. So we have to decide, is God's word true? It either is all true or none of it's true. We either submit our lives to it or we don't. And we can't say, well, I'm submitted to Jesus as Lord and not be submitted to his word because we just read where it says that Jesus is the word made flesh. I'm either submitted to him and his word and the truth or I'm not. There's no in-between. And I want you to understand that the cultural narrative around us that can easily hold us captive is seldom in line with God's truth. And here's the reason why. Because the pillars of our society are controlled by a secular mindset, not a biblical mindset. The pillars of our society, like the media, like entertainment, like education even now in many colleges and even school systems, like a political system, um, even religion now. So it, it gets where all of these things can be driven by a secular mindset, not scriptural. And here's the thing I would tell you. Every one of those pillars knows how to change your mind. Every one of those pillars knows what it takes to change a society. Every one of those pillars knows that if they can bombard you constantly, and it's not like they come with a sledgehammer to change it all at once. It's just a little chipping away, a little here, a little there, a little over time. And pretty soon the whole is different. And it's just a gradual shift. And we see things today shifting more and more. It seems more rapidly. And the reason for that is because information is so readily available. We get it so much faster. All the propaganda, all the stuff, you turn on the news and, and you hear all of this. 
And I don't care if you watch CNN or if you watch Fox. It's all about making money. And here's the reality of it all, guys. Listen, they know if they can keep you in fear, they'll keep you tuning in. But God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And I know right now I'm stepping on some Fox News people's toes. I'm sorry, but here's the truth of it. It all comes from an angle. It all comes from how can I benefit the most? And when we look at this, this is something we need to understand. Because wherever your mind sits will determine your mindset. Where you allow your mind to sit will determine your mindset. It's why Colossians 3 and other places in the Bible tell us to set our minds on things above rather than things below. Let your thoughts rest here, not on the things around us. If you look around you, you're gonna be distorted. Every piece of information that comes into your mind shapes your mind in some way. Every piece. If you don't take that, that information captive and bring it into captivity and bring it to the truth of God's word and analyze it for accuracy, then every piece of information that comes into your mind has the ability to shape it. And when it's coming from the pillars of our society, it has a very real chance of distorting your thinking. It'll distort us away from God's design. It'll bring it in, or either it will bring it in line with his design. I want you to listen to this. This is, I think, really, really important. The power of information is transformation of the mind. The power of information is transformation of the mind. So where my mind sits will determine my mindset. Am I doing like it says in Psalm 1? Am I delighting in God's law or his word? Am I delighting in God? Because it says that the man, the woman who does this will be like a tree planted by streams of water. It'll produce its fruit in season and its leaf will never wither. It's saying even in drought, even in hard times, you'll be fruitful but where does your mind sit? Because the information that we take in has the power of transformation on our mind. The second thing I would tell you is the power of rationalization is transformation of behavior. The power of rationalization is transformation of behavior. So think about this. How many of you can rationalize doing things you wanna do? Friday at lunch, we had an elders meeting. I'm sitting there, try to eat healthy. They walk in, they bring in Chick-fil-A. They pull out chicken wraps. I'm like, this is good. That'll work. Put it in front of them, but then they reach back in the bag and they pull out French fries. For those of you who know me, French fries are like kryptonite for me. Like, it makes me buckle. There's nothing more glorious than having fast food and you eat all your fries, but then you reach back in the bag and there's more fries. They fell out and you have some extra, right? Nothing better than that. And they put those down and I'm like, I'm not gonna eat them. I'm not gonna eat them. I'm not gonna eat them. Three quarters of the way through, I got the, 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 the whole cup and I'm like shaking the, the crumbs out of the bottom. 
We can rationalize. In my mind, I'm like, I'll go exercise. I'll run extra. I'll do something extra. I'll work it off. I'll make it right. We can rationalize it away. And rationalization allows us to fulfill desires that we know really aren't right, but feel okay about it. So if information transforms our mind and rationalization has the power of transformation over our behavior, when those two begin to work together, what happens is normalization. And the power of normalization is the transformation of a society. And when we begin to take in information that changes our thought process, that changes our mind, we begin to think differently, so we begin to act differently. When we come to this place of rationalizing now our behavior and things that are happening, the things that we are doing or other people are doing, it ends up bringing all of that, the information and the rationalization brings in normalization and it transforms an entire society. And we see that happening faster than ever right before our eyes. The question is, is God's word the ultimate authority? Is it the truth? Am I really building my life on it? Or is it just something that's kind of there? Do I even know it enough to build my life on it? Do I spend any time reading it and studying it to know it, to stand on it? Do I know the promises of God so when, as we sang earlier, when the winds and rains do come, that I have something to stand on? Our hope is not in the media, it's not in entertainment, it's not even education or politics. Our hope is in Christ. And if we dig deep, build our house upon him, then the winds and the waves and the rain will not knock us down. We have something firm to stand on. Is the word of God true to us? Can we stand on his word? The second question I would ask is this, is God's design where life is found? And I, what I mean by God's design is this. God created the world very intentionally. God created the world very intentionally. And there was a design to it. And he created it so that the design he created was what would bring him glory. His intent was always that we would fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. That through his creation and our relationship with him, there would be glory that filled the earth. But that rests within his design. When we look at this, what we need to understand is that sin is anything outside of God's design. Sin is not just arbitrary. It's not just something that somebody one day decided this is good and somebody decided this is bad. We look at it, God lays out his design for creation very clearly. He lays out his heart for people and his creation very clearly and he gives us this design. I want you to understand that when we step outside of that design is sin. The question we have to answer, though, is, is life really found living within God's design? And not living in a world of rationalization. Is it really found, is life really found living in God's design? See, here's the thing. Jesus stepped into the world fully in God's design. 
And he stepped into the world not to condemn it, the Bible says, but to deliver it, to save it. Jesus stepped in to deliver us out of it. Jesus stepped into the darkness to deliver us from it. When I say darkness, I mean the spiritually dark world that existed, dead, empty, evil. And Jesus didn't step into the darkness to conform to it. He stepped into the darkness to deliver us from it. Jesus, as we look at John chapter 8, Jesus calls this woman who's caught in adultery out of that lifestyle. He calls her to light. He calls her to God's design. He calls her to life. And if we're going to call people into the light, if we're going to call people back to God's design, we have to believe that God's design is where true life is found. Or else what are we calling them to? Do we really believe that God's design is where life is found? Third thing is do people matter? Do people really matter? I'm challenged by this every Sunday when I step up here because I've never wanted this to be a show. I've never wanted this to be something where we just come in and boy, I need to have a good message so they come back next week. This is life, this is death, this is eternal, this is real stuff, right? And the thing I would tell you is that you matter. You matter. And a lot of times we hear that, it makes us feel good, right? It's true, like you matter. And it can kind of lift our spirits. It can kind of make us feel better to know I matter. But here's the question I would ask you. Do you get the same feeling when I say other people matter? Is it as encouraging? Does it inspire you just as much? And I'm not talking about the person next to you, those you know and are close to. I'm talking about the one who disagrees with you. I'm talking about the one who's not like you. I'm talking about the one who thinks differently than you, the one who has a different political view than you. I'm talking about the one that when you hear them talk about stuff, it just sets your hair on fire, right? Do they matter? Because this is a really important question. If the goal for us is to step into the world and call people into light, then, then they better matter. And it can't just be the people who already are, are in the light. It can't just be us. We can't just sit in our sanitized churches and think this is what we're called to do. We can't just sit in our, our, our nice, neat, clean connect groups and small groups and Sunday school classes and think this is all what we're called to do. That's not it. We're called like Jesus to step into a dark world and call people out of it. Jesus didn't give in to the world. He called people to life out of the darkness. He did the same with this woman. He says, neither do I condemn you. He says, but go away and sin no more. He's calling her to life. See, here's the big difference in Jesus and these Pharisees who brought her before him. The Pharisees didn't care about this woman at all. 
In fact, all they cared about was the fact that they had a pawn, a thing that they could bring before Jesus and hopefully catch him in some type of contradiction so they could accuse him that somehow he would say something blasphemous and they would have a reason to accuse him. They didn't care about this woman. They didn't care about her brokenness. They didn't care about anything to do with her life. They didn't care about the wounds. They didn't care about why she fell into this sin, why she made the decisions she made, why she was broken, none of that. All they cared about was getting their agenda fulfilled. And here's, here's the thing, we can't be like that. They looked at this woman and all they were concerned with was what she could do for them, which in my opinion makes them just as bad as the man who was having sex with her. Only concerned with what she could do for him. And we look at this and we can't be that church. People have to matter to us. People matter so much to God that he stepped into the world to save it. And there would be nothing more arrogant than for us to think that somehow God can save me and change my heart, but he can't save the person that I disagree with. When we've looked around and we see human failure all around us, human failure has caused us to believe negatively about human potential. Human failure has caused us to believe negatively about human potential. But Jesus looked at people. All throughout the Bible, God looked at people. And he saw people who were broken and wounded and hurt. And he began to work in their life and healed them. And then he used them. The only people that were messed up that God used in the Bible was all of them. Gideon was hiding in a wine press from the Midianites and God shows up and calls him a brave and mighty warrior. Who sees that? We would have been like, Gideon, you coward, get out and fight for your family. God shows up, he says, brave and mighty warrior. We look at Peter. Peter, he, in one, one occasion, Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, because of the revelation you have of me upon you, I'm gonna build my church. Turns around a couple of verses later, Peter says, no, you'll never go to the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus turns back around later, he says, you're gonna deny me three times. Peter tries to cut a man's ear off because he missed his head, or cuts his ear off because he missed his head. And yet Jesus still reinstates him. And Jesus becomes a spokesperson for the early church when the Holy Spirit comes and people begin to come to faith and pretty soon the gospel begins to go around the earth. God doesn't, thankfully God, doesn't look at us the way we look at each other. In John 8, 15, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he says, you judge by outward appearances. And they looked at King David. King David didn't make sense to be the king, but God looked past the outward appearance and saw his heart. The same thing is true for you today. Maybe today you don't know Christ and you feel like you're too far gone or, or there's something in your life that's hindering you from that. Listen, you've done things that make you wrong and make you bad. We all have, but God looks past the outward appearance and sees what's inside of you and what he can do through you. If you are messed up, then guess what? You are a great candidate to be used by God. But it means we submit our life to him. And we as people need to remember that. As Christians, we need to remember that. We can't let human failure cause us to see people negatively and miss their potential. 
rather than being saddened by our own rejection or fearful because of our own, the ridicule and, and even angry because of the scorn that's directed at us or our belief system. Our hearts should be broken for the souls of the one who is entrapped in darkness. Our spirits should be shaken by the torment they live in now and will face later. And our tempers should be enraged, not at their behavior, but at the enemy who puts people in such bondage. We see all the time where people get so angry, so angry because this person, as Christians, we get mad because they're not acting like we do. They're not doing things like we do. Well, guess what? They don't know the God we know. They haven't been born again, as Jesus said, in, or as John said in John chapter 1. They don't know. And to expect someone who doesn't know, who still lives in, a, in, in only the sinful nature, they never tasted the goodness of God, to expect them to live like a Christian would be no different than expecting a squirrel to live like a dog. They're not the same. They're different. They don't have the same nature. And don't anybody send me a, a, a YouTube video of, of somebody, a squirrel acting like a dog, right? I don't care. The reality is their nature is very different. We can't expect people who have a different nature to act like people who've been born again who have the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't make us better than them. It ought to make us more grateful than them because God did for us something we could never do for ourselves. See, the Pharisees only saw this girl, this woman, as a thing, a pawn. And so many times, that's how we see people as well. We need to stop trying to modify people's behavior and start speaking to their heart. You need to take the time to know what's broken, to know what's wounded. We need to decide that we believe Jesus is the one who binds up the brokenhearted and sets captives free, or he doesn't. We need to decide if people really do matter. See, Jesus was more concerned with winning her soul than he was winning the fight with these Pharisees. The Pharisees were more concerned with winning a fight and they just said to hell with her soul. We can't be like that. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. He called it what it was. But Jesus started from a very different place than these Pharisees. The Pharisees used their authority to condemn Jesus used his authority to forgive. The Pharisees used their authority to come in a place of judgment. Jesus offered forgiveness. He started from a very, very different place. Does Jesus have the power to deliver? I would say there are a lot of testimonies in here right now of people who would say Jesus has the power to deliver. And if he has the power to deliver you, then he has the power to deliver the one who isn't like you. God's called us to be like Christ. 
And if we're going to be like Christ, then we stand firm in what's true. We don't get taken captive by culture, even when we feel guilty sometimes or pressured for being a Christian. We stand in truth because we know it's true. We know that God's design is where true life is found. We know that people matter, and we know that Jesus has the power to deliver. So when we step into culture, we don't have to be taken captive. And here's the reason why, because Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And the truth of that is this, that you have not been set free to do what you want to do. You have been set free to do what you were created to do, which is to step into the darkness of the culture around us, stand on truth, know that people matter, and lead them into the light, leading them into God's design and into life. Here's how I know that God can deliver and that God saves, is I know what he did for me. Eight days or so before I got saved, I was in a lady's office at the, the, the building I worked at, and I was, I was sitting in her office, and this guy comes in, she was a, a Christian, and he comes in and he was about to leave. I think it was a Friday. And he was going down to Savannah that night, going out. And she said, well, now don't, don't do anything bad, you know. Don't, don't, don't do anything stupid. And here I am. I'm so prideful, arrogant, cynical of Christianity. I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, remember now, if you lust, gouge your eye out. You know, if you do something, you're not supposed to cut your arm off. Just making fun. And then eight days later, I get saved. I come back to that same office on Monday and I can't understand why everybody doesn't want to know Jesus. But that's the power of God to deliver. That's the power of God to save. And he still does that today. We don't have to fear the world because the Bible says Jesus has overcome the world. We don't have to run and hide we can stand firm on the truth. That also means that we can invite people to join us in the light. We can step into the light and call them out of, or step into the darkness and call them into the light. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about winning the fight because the battle's been won. It's about winning people's souls and seeing God change hearts. I can tell you this, the answer's found in the gospel because only the gospel has the power to change hearts. And I wanna pray for us this morning that we would be people who stand on God's truth, not to win an argument, but to win souls. That we would be people who are willing to step into the darkness, into what's uncomfortable and to get in the trenches with people who are different than us and to lead them to the one who gives life. So Father, I thank you this morning that we can come to you, that you've given us life. I thank you, God, that you've delivered us. Those who are called by your name, that you, you've delivered us. Those who put their faith in you, you've delivered us, God out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son whom you love. You've called us yours. We've become children. 
of yours, sons and daughters of yours. I pray we would become imitators of you and step into the darkness to lead people into light, remembering that if you can change our heart, if you can change our life, you can do the same for those who aren't like us. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.